One of the challenges in the healthcare space is often like you don't get the answer to like, did this treatment solve the problem? You either get like nothing happened after that, right? Or maybe I went to a different doctor somewhere and you just don't have the data or, you know, maybe I didn't take my meds because I didn't pick them up or whatever else. But there's a lot of challenges in the healthcare space of actually getting good data sets in order to do machine learning. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Alyssa Simpson Rockwerger is an old friend and colleague and expert on real world AI. She's currently the director of product at Blue Shield California. And before that, she was VP of AI at Appen and Figure Eight, the company that I founded and ran for a decade and sold to Appen. Before that, she was director of product at IBM Watson, where she was an important partner for Figure Eight. So she has over a decade of experience in machine learning, and she's the author of the book, Real World AI, A Practical Guide for Responsible Machine Learning, which covers basically everything we talk about here in this podcast every week. So I'm super excited to catch up with her and talk to her today. Tell me about your work on the, the vaccine. I'm, I'm, I'm dying to, to hear about it. Sure. So at the end of January, you may have heard Blue Shield got asked to help with the vaccine rollout in California. And I was privileged enough to get a phone call, I think the following Saturday from one of our senior executives saying, hey, Alyssa, you know, can you come help? What are you doing right now? Can you join a meeting with the state either today or tomorrow? And I said, sure, Jeff, like you bet. So it was supposed to be a two, three week thing. And I think this is week 12, where I've completely dropped my day job on the floor and just helping out the state. And so there's a team of us that has been deployed full time. And it's been an absolute whirlwind and, and privilege and um, really exciting. So like, what are you doing? Like practically, like what's the... Yeah. What, what Have you heard of myturn.ca.gov? Which if you haven't, go get your vaccine, schedule it. So there's a website where everyone in California can get vaccinated through and schedule appointments. So we've been coordinating enhancements to that, working with the 61 different local health jurisdictions in California. Each one has sort of a slightly different set of challenges and you know opportunities. Um, so for example, the Bay Area... We have really low hesitancy rates and a lot of really eager people who are willing to drive three hours to get their vaccine. Whereas down in Southern California at the moment, you know, there's where we have more supply and we're starting to experience more hesitancy. There's appointments availability pretty easily, hard to reach communities that are not interested or not able to access the vaccine. So we put a really heavy focus on equity and making sure the people who get who need the vaccine most get it first and are able to access it. So this week, it's all about homebound populations, you know, people who are can't leave their houses. How do you get vaccine to them? When these things come in thousand plus dose things, you got to thaw them out. How do you, you know, Pfizer's a deep cold freezer situation. It could only be at room temperature for so many hours. If you are uh, you know, an ambulance worker going to a homebound person's house, you need special training to understand exactly how to administer this and how many houses can you go to before the vaccine expires, right? And anyway, so logistically, super complicated. And so I'm helping on the operations um, and tech team. So everything from you know, doing data analysis to understand where should we ship vaccine, right? And who do we get it to, to helping onboard providers. I think we've contracted with over 3,000 plus or more providers in the state of California. So 
Kaiser's a massive one, Sutter Health Dignity, but there's a long tail of much smaller clinics um, and providers. I think there's over 1,500 clinics on my turn that are giving out vaccine across the state. So different challenges in Tulare County versus Alpine County versus, you know, the Moscone Center in San Francisco and the logistics of making sure everyone in California gets vaccinated. So wow. and there's is a it, lot to do. <laughs> At this point, is it is it mostly the logistical problem is getting the vaccine to the person that wants the vaccine or, or are there other... Uh... So there's a lot of challenges. The three big things that are sort of limits to getting shots in arms are supply. So the first several months of this have been supply constrained. We only get so much supply from the federal government. The other potential constraints are ability to administer vaccine. So that was the, what we focused on really heavily for the first month and a half or so. The third party administrator for California is making sure that we could build up a network of providers who had the logistical capability to receive supply of vaccine and administer it, right? So you need nurses, you need security guards, you need freezers, you need ability to mass fax or you know whatever it is. But some of these are mobile clinics, going into agricultural communities. Some of these are, you know, how do you get the word out to people? So all that sort of capacity. Mm -hmm. And then the last problem is willingness, right? You need people, arms to put shots mm -hmm. into. And so some of that is a hesitancy problem. Some of that is ability to schedule an appointment, right? So 40% of California speaks Spanish. And then there's a long tail of, you know, other languages, Vietnamese, Chinese, Hmong, you know, and how do you address and reach all of those communities, not just logistically support them with making an appointment if they want to, but also helping them understand that the vaccine is good and safe and they should show up and get an appointment. So, you know, and curveballs get thrown like J&J, &J, you know, no longer being administrated. So that was last week, I think we found out at like 6am or something. And you know, by three hours later, we were able to switch the supply to, I think there were like 8,500 appointments the 48 hours, and we had to switch to either Moderna or Pfizer for the vast majority and then reschedule a handful of those appointments. So, And I guess as a, as a data person, did you have feelings about the J&J &J decision? Are you even allowed to, <laughs> to talk oh, about Oh, I have no stuff? insider information. I read the news <laughs> just like you do. I... Uh, assume that the really incredible scientists and doctors who have been making this vaccine and diligently testing it and following the quality control protocols, like it's a good thing that they're pausing and, you know, reviewing it and, and looking thoroughly. And, you know, I have plenty of loved ones who've received the J&J &J vaccine and so far they've all been good and haven't had any problems, knock on wood, but, you know, I'm really glad that everyone's taking it super seriously. Mm -hmm. well I guess the main thing that I was planning to talk to you about was the, the book, that you book. Wrote, which is, yeah. yeah, you wrote a book. Congratulations. Thanks. Oh, well done. And, you know, it feels like, you know, real world AI is really what, you know, as long as I've known your career, what you've been working on. So it does seem like you would be the person to, to write this book. I'm always actually, I'll say one thing. As an aside, I'm always impressed by people that are able to write a book without feedback. Was it a challenging process or I mean, how did that go? I was voluntold to write a book, which I think I've said <laughs> before. Um, so it was a fascinating process. Um, had a lot of help. Great team. I'm dyslexic. Could certainly not have written a book by myself. Um, are you so, actually dyslexic? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. How does extra, that? Extra time in school, the whole thing. Really? Yeah. Wow. Man, working with you, I never noticed anything like that. Do you, Dyslexia is um, dyslexia is an umbrella term. It is it means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. So me and my sister both dyslexic, 
totally different manifestations. I cannot spell to save my life as an example. There are always typos and issues in everything I, every email I send and I don't even see it. My sister is an outstanding speller, math, not her strength. So our issues are different. To be diagnosed with dyslexic, you have to have, you have to score above average or pretty high in certain categories and then average or below average in other categories. And the delta between those in enough categories is what classifies you as dyslexic. So person to person, you could score high or low in totally different areas. So I would imagine that make it even harder to write a book. Something that already seems very <laughs> yes. hard to me. <laughs> no, I, so writing the book, it was a, it was a great, really interesting process. It took a long time. Um, so we started out with sort of an idea of what um, we wanted to do and organize that into sort of an outline and then started flushing out those outlines and interviewed you. Thank you so much for your interview and, and contributing to it. And then lots of other folks who were willing to share their stories about what it's like to actually build and deploy uh, machine learning based technology in the real world for real actual use cases and not kind of BS hype. And so, you know, what's great about the machine learning community is that like people are really nice and they want to share their stories and they want to help others is kind of what I found really consistently. And not every story were we able or authorized to use publicly and, and put in a book. There's a lot of lessons learned and we had to anonymize quite a few, but you know, a, a bunch we could. So it was awesome. But the process is, you know, you do an outline and then you talk through each story, uh, each chapter kind of one by one, and then you go back and reorganize information or content that, you know, sort of makes sense in perhaps multiple places. And our editing team knows how to write books and they do this all day long for a living. So turn sort of word vomit from Alyssa and, and Wilson into actual like paragraphs and sentences. So. And it seemed like you, you know, I mean, I feel like you had a kind of a focus as you do in your career on kind of ethics and and responsible AI. Was it was it kind of hard to get people to talk about that? It is in the zeitgeist, but I wonder if it's hard to get real world stories of like tricky issues. Yeah, it easy to talk about at an abstract level, easy to talk off the record with people around lessons learned and challenges, harder to get them to go on record about failures and specifics of those failures in large public companies. Mm. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the failures and, and what happened, like some of the, the anecdotes that you have in your book? Yeah, I'll start with a personal one that I think we've talked about before. But you know, when I was at IBM, I was new to machine learning and we were launching a visual recognition system and you know, the API did a, a very sort of general thing, but we were improving the accuracy of it. And I was new and I was like, well, how do you know it's better? You know, how is the accuracy better? And we sort of, with the team settled on the F1 score as a, a fairly good measure of that. And, you know, our F score, F1 score improved and, you know, there was a big Delta and we were excited to launch the next version. And a couple um, days before launch, one of the team members uh, reached out to me and said, Alyssa, we can't launch this. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, better. We've all agreed. Like there's a lot of energy behind this. And he uh, sent me an image that I uh, tested against the algorithm. And the tag that came back for that image was the word loser. And the image itself was a picture of someone in a wheelchair. And I was horrified. And, you know, I thought that that was, you know, terrible bias that we didn't want to encode and we certainly didn't want to launch. And it really sort of gave myself and the team, you know, a wake up call to like, hey, how could this have gotten into our data when the accuracy is supposed to be better? And, you know, the the aha moment for me as a newbie was, well, stupid, of course, it's the data, the data and the training data and the tags that you've associated with that are the problem. And so, you know, we had a, a great team where we went back and reviewed every single tag, which was 
thousands and thousands and thousands of tags and millions of images. And we reviewed it by hand as a, as a team. We divided and conquered and we pulled out quite a few objectionable things that we didn't want to be the public face of IBM. You know, that took time and money and pain. And we were able to relaunch something that was contained less sort of what I would call unwanted bias in that particular system. But, you know, IBM certainly not uh, free from that and, and many Others have had challenges with visual recognition systems, particularly there's been a lot of uh, talk recently about bias in facial recognition systems. So uh, they're tricky to get right. And it seems, I mean, it seems hard to fix, but even maybe more concerning is that it was just sort of caught by someone who happened to be trying something. I mean, do you have yeah. recognitions on, recommendations on diagnosing? These yeah. Kind of so that was a long time ago. And since then, you know, there's a ton uh, more, but what I always say is be proactive around the biases that you're looking for, right? So there's a handful of biases that you are regulated, right? So you don't want to have gender bias. You don't want to have racial bias or other ones. So depending on what your system is deployed for, you're going to want to set up sort of a proactive uh, monitoring system to take a percentage of your real-time public data. Do it also in tests, but also once you've launched sort of the real-time data and siphon it off and review it, typically with humans manually, or at least sort of set up some alerting if things fall or skew outside of what your normal expectations uh, would be. And, you know, that involves usually dashboards and, you know, a lot of data and, and looking through tags, but also sort of proactively setting up a feedback mechanism, right? So that people can report things that you didn't hear about or you didn't think of and being able to escalate those quickly and react quickly and adjust and hopefully be able to, you know, retrain your model or remove it or have a backup plan that does not include your model if you need to take it down for some reason um, for an extended period of time to, to mitigate things that you um, didn't anticipate. But then I guess fixing it, I mean, it, it doesn't seem realistic these days to go through all of a training data set and, and kind of, you know, take out everything objectionable, or maybe it is, I guess. What, I mean, on a model that's trained on kind of millions or, or like billions of records, do you have recommendations there for how to improve the quality of the training data in a, in a maybe more cost-effective way? So to me, that problem is, so even if it's millions or billions, it's where are you getting those millions or billions, right? And is there selection bias and where you're getting um, that data from. So take a speech recognition example. You know, the speech recognition systems today available in the U.S. are better at understanding men's voices than they are women's voices, or they are better at understanding people who speak English as their first language versus people who speak English as a secondary language. And that's largely due to the data that is collected. And it's thousands of hours of data collected. But if you're not actively collecting data from the populations that you want to serve, you're going to have a challenge there. So I think even in aggregate, it's appropriate and, and quite feasible to think critically around where you're getting your data and does it reflect the community or the people that you are going to be serving with the model. And I guess, you know, it's it's a little bit of a different issue, maybe, you know, men and women versus English as a first language, English as a second language, at least if you think about, well, I don't even know, I guess, I guess there's more people with English as a second language, but you could imagine a case where there's a, a smaller group of speech patterns, for example. Yeah. Do, do you think that you should collect at the the sort of like ratios that you, you have, or should you try to over collect, you know, the more rare cases? Do, do you have thoughts on that? 
I think that's where sort of a team comes in. You know, I, I'd ask you, I'd certainly skew towards over collecting, you know, rare cases, but definitely monitoring for those cases to understand how those are performing. I, I don't, and I think as a team, you need to understand and, and balance, you know, the business priorities because it's not always feasible to collect. So let's say you're trying to deploy audio recognition in a call center, and let's pretend you're, I don't know, Walmart, right? And the you serve, you know, most of the United States, but look at your customers. Do they skew to people who speak English as a first language or people who don't speak English as a first language? Are you going to deploy this in your entire call center? Are you going to start with just California or just Texas um, and start to look and, and deploy models in a small way is what I find often works best to find sort of a narrow place to apply and then scale up as you can prove success and also collect more data typically, because let's say you deploy it in Texas. If you, so, you know, Texas has a heavy Spanish speaking population and you get a model that works well, let's say it's only for handling returns. But if you then want to expand, say to Georgia, well, a Southern drawl is going to come into place. And that model that you built for Texas is probably not going to work that well for the population in Atlanta, which, you know, uh, skews more African-American versus Latino. And that's a different sort of speech pattern. And so you could deploy the same model, but you're probably not going to get the same results. And so needing to collect more data, mature and tweak it. So I think less around like, okay, how do you start right from the very beginning to try to do everything well? And it's more like, hey, start small with a specific and narrow business problem and, and do that well, and then gradually grow and use perhaps different or related data as you grow in order to address those additional needs. Hmm. I mean, that makes sense. And that just seems like kind of best uh, practice for any case, even sort of setting aside ethical concerns. Yeah, I think one of the big things, not mistakes perhaps, but challenges coming into machine learning is that there's a lot of hype and everyone thinks you can you know, solve a really big problem with machine learning with magic. And that's just never the case. It's much, much more successful to start narrow and start small and, and build out. And that's also a good way to address unintended bias is by narrowing kind of what you're trying to do because it narrows the data set that you need. It makes it less expensive and it allows your pilot to be more successful. I guess as you're researching the book, what other sorts of anti-patterns or failures did you see besides besides those types? What other things that people run into? I think, so one, we talked a little bit about the Goldilocks problem, which is trying to pick the right problem to solve and pick the right size and narrow problem to solve that's well-suited for AI. I think another challenge is around team and getting a successful team in place that has the right mix of skills in order to successfully deploy something to production. This is not a case of a lone data scientist or, you know, even a team of data scientists building something in order to actually get something into production. You need DevOps, you need data engineers, you need a UX designer. Typically you need a product manager, you need regular front end software engineers and backend engineers. You need a whole team of people that is responsible for actually deploying something into a production environment. And that can often be at many companies harder than developing the model itself is actually getting to production because you start to run into things like legal and security and risk tolerance. Um, and all of those things mean you have to have a backup plan and you have to understand how you are going to handle unknown and you're going to need escalation paths and putting those sort of 
business and technical processes in place. Often it's the business sort of thinking through that implications of the model or what happens when a decision is made and what happens if you need to explain why that decision was made to auditors or whoever is going to be sort of scrutinizing this. That conversation, if you don't start early and don't involve those people early in the um, process can be big blockers um, to launching something to production. So what I encourage folks to do when they're starting out is, is think broadly around the cross-functional team of people that you want to have on your bench and, and think they, they need to be diverse, right? These are, you know, the finance people should certainly get involved. Sometimes HR needs to get involved and, you know, it's not, not do you, the engineers. Is there any specific stories you can share where like, you know, kind of legal came in at the end and, and blocked something or, or HR or finance wasn't involved and then, the project kind of couldn't launch, even though the MO model was working well? HR. So I'll use the Amazon one for HR, right? So there's a very public story around how Amazon was trying to use uh, machine learning to predict who was going to get hired um, at Amazon or who would be really strong candidates for, for jobs there. And I don't know if it was HR that blocked it at the 11th hour, but you know they found it to be not sort of serving the HR professionals and the goals of the HR professionals because it was super biased and it was biasing against women pretty heavily. And so, you know, that's a scenario where, you know, the model was working very well, I think, at the beginning, which is predicting who would be strong candidates, but they weren't sort of considering some other goals that were really important to Amazon, which is like hiring a diverse, you know, employee base. And so that's potentially a case where the, you know, the training data wasn't appropriate or, you know, I'm not sure exactly kind of what went wrong behind the scenes there. Perhaps you know those people, I don't. But, you know, those are the types of things where legal or, or HR can say, hey, you know what, like can't do this. I, I know Uber has also had challenges in terms of, you know, making sure that their escalation path for support tickets that they use machine learning to classify, you know, appropriately classify, you know, the right tickets in the right way to the right level of severity and scrutinizing that process. Because if you miscategorize something that's really urgent, you know, that's a potentially sort of legal, legal challenge for the company. You know, I guess kind of channeling, you know, what our audience kind of asked me about all the time. I'm, I'm kind of curious if you have suggestions for, you know, an ML practitioner who kind of wants to work on something meaningful or wants to work for a company that, that really sort of embodies responsible or ethical AI. I mean, do you have any suggestions on what they might kind of look for in the interview process or before that, or maybe even companies that you think do this really well? Sure. You know, so I, I recently got out of the AI business and I got into healthcare, which uh, a lot of well-meaning mentors and, and people I admire are sort of scratching their heads being like, you left all these lucrative job opportunities on the floor to go into an insurance company? Like, Alyssa, are you out of your mind? And, you know, maybe I am, but what I looked for, I followed the money when I was making that decision. And I don't mean personally, I mean, follow how the money goes in the business or the organization. So I chose to work at Blue Shield, which is a nonprofit organization. And the incentives for the company are to cover more people in California with health insurance at a lower cost. By law, we cannot charge more for premiums. If we accidentally take in more money than we pay out in healthcare, we have to give it back to the people of California, which this year, because of the pandemic, the models were all, all, all over the place and wrong. And we ended up giving a lot of money back to our subscribers. And so for me, understanding how a company makes money and what drives the business will ultimately drive sort of the models um, that take place. So if you look at Facebook or you look at Google, or you look at Amazon, these are for-profit companies. 
you know, Facebook makes its money on advertising. And so they have some of the most sophisticated advertising models in the world around encouraging, you know, the right content in front of the right person. And, you know, for me, that wasn't something that I wanted to spend my time doing. There's a lot of awesome people that work there, but it, it's not for me. And I decided to sort of go in a, a different direction and... I think can be really hard for people to take a really hard look at where they want to spend their time and their day to day and what problems they want to think about. And, you know, I'm feeling really fortunate to be thinking about how to get more vaccines and arms. And there's not much machine learning that's going into that, frankly, it's, you know, spreadsheets and pretty basic data analysis, but I'm thrilled to be spending my time doing it. And I, you know, hope that Blue Shield can, you know, work on some cool, interesting machine learning problems in other areas. I guess, you know, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, it does seem to me like there are a lot of really interesting ML applications in, in this field. And that one of the, the Blue Cross Blue Shields, I think they separate by state, but I think one of them is actually a, a waste of biases customer. And I think at I think Figure Eight had some customers in that in that realm. Yeah, there's tons you, of interesting use cases in health insurance. Um, can you tell me about some of the, the use cases in health insurance? Sure. I mean, a simple one that you know super well, Lucas, is around looking at healthcare data, right? So if you're looking at it in aggregate, right, for thousands or millions of people, you're trying to understand what are patterns in terms of uh, a patient's record um, over their lifetime that can be indicative of good outcomes, right? So if I, for example, I have I've been having carpal tunnel issues, you know, challenges from working at home and not moving nearly enough. And my, I went to the doctor and they, you know, prescribed some steroids and some physical therapy and whatever else. But if you look sort of, you know, a few months later, like my hand is still bothering me, you know, that, that didn't really work that well. And so are there patterns that you can look at at a population level to recommend particular treatment, courses of treatment that, that work, right? So from a machine learning perspective, you, if if, and this is a big if in healthcare, if you have a good data uh, training set that's clean and well-organized and you're able to access, you can look at large kind of outcomes like that and say, hey, you know, did Alyssa need follow-up after that? You know, did we have to spend more money on healthcare? Did you know, was her problem solved or not? That's actually kind of one of the challenges in the healthcare space is often like you don't get the answer to like, did this treatment solve the problem? You either get like, nothing happened after that, right? Or maybe I went to a different doctor somewhere and you just don't have the data or, you know, maybe I didn't take my meds because I didn't pick them up or whatever else. But there's a lot of challenges in the healthcare space of actually getting good data sets in order to do machine learning. So that's one use case. There's other use cases that are, I would call simpler, like chat, right? Or, you know, people are trying to file claims or have billing issues and being able to respond faster to people and make our call center agents more efficient with their time by, you know, automatically answering sort of tier one support issues like I lost my password or whatever else and, and being able to handle that in a lot of different languages, um, for example. So machine learning can support those types of use cases. And I guess is how, how real is this? Like, like are, are, is ML chat like used today? Like if I went to, the Blue Shield website, would I interact with a, a chat? A yeah, chat we're rolling out chat. Um, yeah. I I don't know if you went today. I can't, I'd have to look, get back to you. It's not my particular area of ownership, um, but we certainly have, have chat, I think also for the providers, right? So 
insurance, I've learned a ton about insurance. It's an interesting space because you have customers that are, are members, like you buy health insurance from us or you get it through your employer. But we also have doctors who interact with the insurance company for lots of different reasons. So that's the providers. And then also the employers or brokers or HR people and all those people need help. So I th- I'm, I'm pretty sure our, our chat is rolled out for employers and brokers and providers. I'm not sure if it's for for members. And then also in, we, we certainly have it internally as well. So if I need something as a employee, I can use our uh, virtual assistant internally to order a new mouse or get provisioned access to a system or whatever else for IT support. So that's actually been a really successful use case um, for us. And I mean, the health record stuff seems so so evocative, right? Like I, I would sort of love to be able to like do like a deep data analysis on my own health record. And, yeah, if you and, could get yeah, it. For, yeah, like if I could get it, yeah. <laughs> and look out into the future. And I guess why why do you think these, or, or maybe these do exist? Like, like, would you say that, you know, your employer is is like currently doing analysis of health records to kind of forecast what, what might help happen to people? Yeah, so absolutely. We look at population health and it's not just us, but we work with other companies who perhaps do some of this analysis, then we actually consume the insights from those analysis. And we work with a lot of different partners. There's a platform we call Webolution. So I'll give you an example. We work with one uh, company that has done a lot of analysis around kidney disease. So people who um, are on dialysis and getting good outcomes there, they figured out, hey, here is the right way to treat kidney dialysis patients that has better outcomes. And so we encourage and, and steer our patients towards you know this particular program because it's proven that it has better outcomes than perhaps treating it without this program. And so that's an example where we try to recognize patients who have a particular diagnosis or condition and then encourage them to use the programs that have the best outcome. I see. So it is sort of like take like kind of one hypothesis and just test it. Um, no, not, not that I'm aware of. Maybe there are other people that I, I don't know about, but the it, it's more around, you know, if you look at population, the big things are the same, the same things, right? It, it's diabetes, it's hypertension, it, you know, these are sort of the big things that impact our population. And so if you can sort of encourage people to shift their often lifestyle habits to things that are going to be more successful, you can have better outcomes. But, you know, as it turns out, it's not easy. Uh, a lot, it's a lot easier said than done to get people to take their health seriously. And, and some people don't, right? Some people are like, it's just not a priority for me to change my lifestyle to be healthier. And other people are super, super eager to do it. And then there's a bunch of us probably that fall somewhere in between on that spectrum. And we're willing to make certain accommodations or changes in our lives. And, you know, others were not. And so how do you use different tools or different approaches for different populations to sort of move them into healthier lifestyles? Because if you kind of take a step back, it's not, we don't want, at least Blue Shield, we, it's not that we like want to pay less money in healthcare costs. We want to get everyone healthier, right? Mm-hmm. And because healthcare as, an, as a force in the macro sort of U.S. economy is an incredibly inefficient expense that we, we simply can't afford. It represents a huge percentage um, of our spending as a country, and it's not sustainable. And so we need to find ways to get our healthcare costs down as, as an industry overall, because it, it's just not something our economy can, can support. 
what have you been working on before the vaccine and and post leaving Appen? I mean, is like what 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 projects have you been? I was working on this longitudinal healthcare uh, record problem, and so we actually we launched a pilot, which I'm super excited about. And so for a certain percentage of, of our members, they actually can get their longitudinal patient record with every provider data if we have access to it. So that's a big if. But if you've submitted a claim to Blue Shield or your provider participates in one of the state wide networks in California. It's called Manifest Medics, and they have thousands of providers that send data. And by provider, I mean doctor. So, you know, if you're um, a large healthcare institution, you, you may participate in this. And then we show it to you as a member. And you can like look at your record. And then we also recommend things that perhaps you you haven't done. So if you haven't gotten your flu shot, or if you haven't been to your annual checkup, or you're overdue for a cancer screening or something like that, we'll say, hey, Alyssa, like you haven't gotten your pap smear this year, like go get it done. And you can interact with us and you can say, oh, actually I already did it. And you just don't have the data or thanks. Let me set a reminder to like, go get that done. So that's, it's my, it's my baby, my, my project that I was working on before I got pulled into the vaccine work. That's so great. And and can I, if I'm a, if I'm a member of Blue Shield, can I use it? Can I uh, yeah. It? So there's a, po- yeah, it's rolled out to, I think about 50,000 people right now, and we are working on it and hopefully uh, going to ramp it up to more Blue Shield members in the future. That's so cool. And and I guess probably there's, I mean, I, I would think for myself, there's things that no ML algorithm would be needed to tell me would make me healthier. Yeah, a lot of it's very simple, right? Like, hey, you you did or you didn't do this. It doesn't require machine learning. But what what is, what has required machine learning type of thinking in this project is around, frankly, like data cleaning, right? So we may have multiple records of the same medication for the same member, right? Like I get prescribed birth control every single month and, you know, I have multiple prescriptions like sign overlap with each other. So if you look at the last 10 years, right, if I'm displaying that to me as a list of symptoms, I don't want a list of 10 years of data worth of every medication I've ever subscribed. I want you to group it logically by the brand name or the medication type. And so that is sort of a data cleaning machine learning exercise around sort of grouping medications together because one pharmacy may have reported it, you know, with slightly different wording or uh, dosage or something versus another pharmacy or another doctor. And so organizing that information, machine learning can be a natural language processing can be super useful there. And I guess I should say, you know, we were joking about this, but my my wife runs a company called Picnic Health that that does which a lot does of a stuff. bang up job. Yeah, yeah so. in my in my unbiased opinion, it's fantastic. At uh, <laughs> I've, I've, kind I've, of heard, I've heard they're really good at that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I guess why do you think that? Why do you think that these 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 health records end up so hard to structure? I ask your wife. She knows way better than I do. You know, from my limited uh, understanding, I think it's because the healthcare system in the United States is just really, really fragmented. And there's so many different entities in the data chain. Right. So I'll use a personal example. This week I was, I get headaches and uh, a doctor prescribed me a new medication and I have had headaches for a long time. So I've cycled through all the normal ones that someone would use. And this one is an expensive medication and, you know, sort of out of the bounds of normal. And she prescribed it a week ago, Monday to me. And my pharmacy followed up with me that same day saying, Hey, we're working with, you know, your doctor and insurance to like get this covered and we'll get out to you a couple of days go by. I still don't have my medication. I followed up 
and they say they're working on it and blah, blah, blah. The, the number of different entities that have to sort of touch or approve this end to end from my doctor and me having a conversation and her prescribing it to like me getting it is like, I'm not joking, probably 10 different systems, right? Mm -hmm. So it has to go from the the electronic medical record that my doctor is using. And that has to go into sort of an intermediary system that goes in between the doctor um, and the doctor's office or the hospital and the insurance company. And so there's a third party in between that processes what's called prior authorizations. And then the, the insurance company has to we don't directly integrate with that particular third party. And so we have to do some data moving around in order to get it to the right person in our system to approve that. And then it has to go back um, to the doctor's office. But then there's this pharmacy over here that hasn't been involved in any of this so far. And you know, there's a bunch of systems that they use in between. And the short answer is there's a lot of different systems involved and they don't all talk to each other very successfully and the data gets manipulated and changed and there's different standards and different data systems. And even though there are sort of standards around healthcare data, they're, I think July, they go into effect in California in terms of being mandated to follow certain types of standards for certain narrow use cases, but there's just not a ton of structure mm -hmm. for these different data types. And so, you know, they've evolved in different ways and even like the electronic medical record. We're dealing with this in the vaccine world. How do you know that, how does your doctor know that you've been given a vaccine? Well, you know, that's kind of a challenge because, you know, let's say you got it at Walgreens. They may have taken your insurance and then maybe they submitted a claim to your insurance. Maybe they didn't do that if you didn't have insurance, but they're not reporting it back to your doctor's system. And anyway, there's, there's a lot of different software systems that are being used and there's not standards. Whereas if you look at a different countries that have more nationalized healthcare systems, there's one two systems. And so there's just a lot less fragmentation. Whereas in you know, California, there's 8,000 different providers and you know, there's 10 major electronic medical record systems, you know, three of which are really big, but there's a long tail for, for the rest of them. And a place like Walgreens, you know, doesn't use electronic health record system or Safeway or, you know, they, they're a pharmacy. They use pharmacy systems, which are different than the hospital system. So that's a lot of answering your question, but it's kind of basic data. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's funny how uh, I could see how you know years of working in ML would prepare you well for the uh, American healthcare system. But it's it, it's basic <laughs> data problems. It's not particularly sophisticated machine learning problems. It's data hygiene. Right, right. Although it seems like that's the problem everywhere. Yeah, right? I mean like, that's the problem everywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Was there, were there like other sort of surprises kind of going from, I guess, a startup to, you know, to an insurance company? Like, was, like, is your job, how similar is your job doing, doing product there? I think product management is similar no matter where you do it. It's always balancing stakeholders and priorities. And the day-to-day -day is certainly different in different types of companies, but I think fundamentally my skill sets are the same and the job I do is roughly the same. I was I think the problems are the problem space is really different and the excitement I get around it is really different. So, you know, to answer your question earlier around, you know, how do people navigate into working on problems that they really want to work on and really love and how do you do that is, you know, follow where your interests are. I I'm thrilled to get into the weeds of doing, you know, 
data munging. And I personally wrote, I think, 500 different data validation rules for prescription organizing, looking through hundreds of records of, you know, different types of prescriptions and how to organize some basic data hygiene rules. That was like super fun. And I was thrilled to do it. It was painful work. And, you know, certainly I have other skills, but I was really excited about the problem that we were solving, which was launching a cogent experience to my friends and family who are members of Blue Shield around being able to look at their longitudinal patient record and, and not have all this like messy duplication of data that they're showing. And so, sorry, I got a little off track, but you know. No, no, I, I was, I totally, totally relate to what like, you're saying. And I think you know, it's incredibly the, good advice. When I was, you know, at, uh, at Appen and, and Figure8, we worked, some of the problems we worked on were, were super interesting and, and awesome and, and others, you know, weren't as close to my heart, you know, and, and we were optimizing advertising dollars or, you know, whatever else. And, and those are things that I just get less excited about personally. Totally. Well, you know, I guess we always end with these questions, but it's funny because they're so relevant to your book because, you know, what we want to talk about on this on this podcast is really just, you know, making ML work in the real world. But I, I want to ask them to you and sort of get your take from all the research that you've really done and, and you know, and, and, and maybe get as specific as you can. But what, what do you think is an underrated aspect of machine learning that you think people should pay more attention to uh, than they currently are? I think teamwork, uh, and we talked a little bit about this, but uh, it's really teamwork. I think there's a misconception that machine learning work is pretty solitary and you can teach yourself to do it or you can do it by yourself on a laptop or whatever, but it's a team in order to deploy anything functional that matters. And it takes a lot of different skill sets. And for the team to work together successfully, it, it's... It's really around best practices of any team functioning successfully and has less to do with machine learning. But I think that often gets overlooked because there's a lot of focus on the technology and the right hard skills and the right technical systems. And I think it's really easy to overlook the team dynamics of getting people to work together well, whether that's, you know, quality engineers or, or data folks or, or project managers or designers or scrum masters, like you need a team of people who trust each other. And, you know, we certainly have plenty of those problems at Blue Shield or any team that I've ever worked on where people don't necessarily trust each other. And, you know, they may be critical of others' work or they may have, you know, communication challenges or whatever, and particularly remote, you know, some of those things are are harder to kind of smooth over. But, you know, for successful machine learning teams that I've worked with, they have high trust, they have high collaboration and cooperation with a diverse group of people. And they, they welcome outside ideas and people who are willing to roll their sleeves and, and get dirty. If you think of like ML practitioners that you've worked with or someone, you know, is kind of listening to this, is there, is there any resources that you'd point them to, to kind of, you know, get be like become a better team member? Has there been like, you know, like a, a book that you've read or an article that's, that's kind of helped you with this? You know, one of the books that was recommended to me that I really like around teamwork is called Turn the Ship Around. And it's a book um, that goes behind the scenes of a nuclear warship that was being deployed. And it was written by the captain of that ship. And he, he came in and he took over the ship and it was a low performing team. But at the end of the day, it was a nuclear 
ship and I'm going to totally botch all of the military stuff and get it completely wrong, but, you know, really important to do it well, like can't yeah, screw yeah, it up. Totally. Uh, and, you know, the, the team hadn't been collaborating well. And he goes behind the scenes and kind of talks about his time, literally turning the ship around to get it ready for deployment, to go back out into, you know, doing whatever it's supposed to be doing, but it couldn't leave the harbor until it passed all its safety checks. And the team sort of was, you know, functioning better. And they were sort of working on this top down approach and you know everyone's sort of covering their own butt and not necessarily really thinking critically about what they were being asked to do and and how to do it better for the right outcomes and anyway i love this book and i think it applies in business and all sorts of different settings particularly machine learning um, because it's high stakes often what machine learning projects are being asked to do and that the problems are big and they're important um, and they're worthy of solving but they can also have pretty dangerous or negative consequences if they're not done well. And so this is a book with an analogy that I like to, you know, a nuclear warship because it's an important, it's an important problem and it, it requires a, a huge team of people collaborating, you know, towards, towards the right outcomes. Wow, I love it. Oh, I'm going to read that book. I'll send um, it to you. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I guess and the, the question that we find that we always end with is, and this is like kind of what you spent yeah, I think most of your career on. So I'm, I'm curious what you think is the biggest thing here. But we always ask what's the biggest challenge of kind of making machine learning work in the real world, or maybe like where there's sort of like specific pitfalls where you see machine learning projects fail. Yeah, I mean, we certainly talk a lot about this in our book. I think the a few major areas are not having the right team, not having the right problem, not having the right data. And I don't know, I could go on. I think those three are probably like the the big ones. The data to me is often the long pole. Hmm. And I guess for more, read the book. For more, read the book, we'll yeah. Put a, we'll put a link to it and yeah, you should read it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Lucas. It's a pleasure to be here as always with you. Doing these interviews are a lot of fun. And the thing that I really want from these interviews is more people get to listen to them. And the easy way to get more people to listen to them is to give us a review that other people can see. So if you enjoyed this and you want to help us out a little bit, I would absolutely love it if you gave us a review. Thanks.